On this special year-end episode of Crime Beat, I want to pull back the curtain on crime reporting in a way that only two people who've covered this beat can. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. And today, I'm joined by Christopher Gofford, the reporter and host of two amazing podcasts, Dirty John and Detective Trap. Well, he had always sort of been portrayed as this uh, larger-than-life, semi-mythic figure of, uh, of evil. And he was a Satanist. It really brings to the forefront um, what people's values are and how they, how they behave in extreme situations tells you a lot about them. I think of crime reporting as a window into people's, uh, into people's character, and I think people are afraid in a lot of ways, even at a subconscious level, and true crime allows them to work through their anxieties. Today, we're going to talk crime and justice and give you a look inside our world, a look at how two journalists work to uncover the truth. This is Crime Beat. Well, I had a chance to listen to Darkness in the Past, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you uh, be a part of this episode. So one of the reasons why I really wanted to be able to talk to you for this is there are very few people out there with the amount of experience, especially in in crime reporting, that can relate to kind of what I've gone through. I mean, you have decades of experience. Um, I'm I'm almost at the 25 year mark myself, so <laughs> I know that you can relate to a lot of the stuff that I've gone through in the past. Um, people have asked me, you know, how do you not get jaded? Yeah, I mean, for me, the question is. Did my warped sense of uh, the world uh, arise from years of covering mayhem, or did I find myself drawn to it because I had this view of, uh, of people in the world? And I, I just don't know. I mean, I, uh, I've covered uh, trials and killings and uh, horrific things that human beings have done to one another for as long as I've been a reporter. And, um, yeah, after a while, you uh, you tend to grow mistrustful. You get super skeptical. And uh, as I've mentioned before, you know, um, you, you tend to, uh, you tend to distrust people in interactions that uh, ordinary people who don't do this job might not uh, worry about so much. For instance, if, uh, a carpet installer comes or a roofer comes to my house to do some work, I assume that they're going to kill me before the day is out because I've written about psychopathic carpet installers and uh, and roof guys um, for many years. So when I wake up alive the next morning, it's always a, a happy surprise. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I can relate to that. You know, whether it's, you know, standing in line at the grocery store, I find myself kind of just looking around, taking note of different things, like almost like you're preparing to be a witness for any situation. Or, you know, it could be, you know, you're leaving, uh, you know, a C train station or a transit station and like just looking around to make sure you're not being followed or something like that. And it's because all of these scenarios have played out, you know. Um, so it's it's really hard not to look at things just a little bit more skeptically, I think. Well, how much of this behavior, though, was part of you before you started doing the job? 
You know, I was like born and raised on a farm in rural Alberta. So, you know, my exposure to crime was very little. There was one major crime case that I talk about in one of my episodes that um, shook the the small rural community. It was a, you know, a, a young girl who was kidnapped. She went babysitting. Um, and her, her homicide is still unsolved many, many, many years later. So definitely that opened my eyes to things that could happen when you're just doing something very ordinary, something that you should be able to do. Um, but really my exposure, I think, to the really bad stuff came when I started crime reporting. Um, and that would be like in 1997. So, and quickly. 1997. Uh, you, wow. Okay. And I believe you started reporting right around the same time. Yeah, I got out of college in 94, and uh, my first daily job at a newspaper was at the Daily Pilot in Newport Beach, Costa Mesa in Southern California, and I covered the cops and courts beat. So our careers have a very similar uh, trajectory, and they began, yeah, right around the same time. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles uh, in the 1980s, and the big terror then was this guy Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, um, and he was uh, breaking into people's homes and uh, killing people, um, raping women and uh, killing the husbands and uh, just just leaving a, leaving a city really in fear for a long time, and um, I remember I had nightmares about him appearing on my fire escape in the little apartment that I lived in. Um, and then he was uh, then he was caught and sent to death row. And I think it was during my first year as a reporter in 96, I guess it was, I went up to death row in San Quentin to interview somebody else. Um, and there he was sitting behind me with his, um, his wife, who had met him... Um, after he'd been caught and uh, thought he was innocent and married him right there on uh, on death row. And so how did that change your perception on, like, because you had this image of what he would be like. Like, how did that uh, translate when you actually met him? Well, he had always sort of been portrayed as this uh, larger-than-life, semi-mythic figure of, uh, of evil. And he was a Satanist, so he... I think he drew a pentagram on his palm at one point, and he had this really sinister look to him. Almost looked like a a, a rock star with uh, high cheekbones, long hair, um, and he had this whole parade of uh, groupies. Um, so he had he had this sort of uh, larger than life persona created through the media, and I. I I saw him there, and he was just a, uh, he was, there, there was much less to the guy um, in person than, uh, than met the eye. At least that was my impression. It wasn't a long or, or substantive interaction. It was basically enough to, uh, to nod at each other, but he seemed um, not at all a Hannibal Lecter type uh, in it. In the years since, I have to say that my interest in the psychology of sadism and of serial killers, which used to be keen, has uh, really abated, and I'm much more interested now in the psychology of uh, the people who hunt them and uh, the psychology of victims and how they endure and survive. 
and also the lifestyle of uh, other types of criminals, um, petty hustlers and people on the periphery. Um, that, to me, has become way more interesting than, uh, than the psychology of a guy like uh, Richard Ramirez. Um, how about yourself? What do you... Uh, What's your, evolu- what's your evolution been? Well, definitely, I feel like there is an emphasis, you know, and you can Google every single podcast that's out there, and there's a lot that focus on the offenders. So a lot of people know the names of the offenders. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with my podcast is put the focus on the victims and the families. I would like you to be able to listen, and at the end of listening, you know who the victims are. And the emphasis is taken right. away because like the impact on these people is just so great. And I think there are so many stories to be told. And, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for your work. Your your podcasts are my very favorite uh, podcasts. And I just finished listening to your most recent Detective Trap podcast. And um, I really liked how you put the emphasis on the investigator. And I, I can relate to that because... A lot of the homicide investigators or sex crimes investigators that I deal with have such strong personalities, you know, and they're Uh driven and they're so compassionate. You know, I've seen homicide detectives investigate a case and they realize that a family has been, you know, just gutted right before Christmas, just shattered. And they'll go out and do a toy drive for that family. You know, like these are real Uh people. And I think that that gets forgotten a lot of the time that mm-hmm. these are are people that really care and there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes so I really appreciate that you share that. You're, uh, you're kind to say that Nancy, I appreciate it. Talk about just uh, how you deal with kind of, you know, you put a lot of really negative stuff into your mind covering these trials and cases a lot of people will ask me, you know, how do you de-stress, how do you compartmentalize and, and deal with the negative subject matter? Um, well, you're assuming that I do uh, de-stress. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> I mean, the stuff the stuff lingers, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, you uh, you can go home and um, you're uh, you're a professional and you're doing a job that you're paid to do. It's an awful lot of ugliness that uh, that we're exposed to. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a glimpse into people at their most fundamental, dealing with life and death, with fear and with survival, and with hope. And uh, it really brings to the forefront um, what people's values are and how they how they behave in extreme situations tells you a lot about them. So I think of crime reporting as a window into people's uh, into people's character, and I think the explosion of true crime as a genre, one of the reasons it's so popular is that uh, people are afraid in a lot of ways, even at a subconscious level, and true crime allows them to work through their anxieties. I mean, Megan Abbott had a really terrific essay that she, uh, that she wrote about, um, about the genre, and she said, well, she was exploring why true crime was popular in particular with uh, with female audiences and one of the uh, the things she pointed to was that the genre um, explores a lot of the taboo topics 
that uh, society as a whole doesn't want to address uh, directly. Um, things like uh, domestic abuse, um, serial predation, anxieties uh, about relationships, um, a lot of these sorts of things. So I think that uh, I think that if it's done well, a good true crime story can really shed light on on the collective unconscious of uh, of the moment. Um, what do you think? I know a lot of people send me questions. Like they want to know the why a crime will happen. Um, in the most recent podcast that I just did, it was a two-part series about a, an 18-year-old who was, you know, he studied a year abroad. He came home and he was going out with some friends for a, you know, a homecoming outing. And so he's just this young kid with his full life ahead of him, really, really smart, just a really, really good kid. He wanted to become a doctor. Um, so he's at this club, it's almost closing time, and he hears somebody make a racial comment towards the other person. And, you know, a lot of people will just kind of let it go, whatever, but he was the kind of guy who needed to say something, like he wanted to stand up for this stranger. So he did, and that is all he had to do to spark him becoming the target of an attack. And it's one of the most horrific cases that I've covered. And it's just like really, really hard to comprehend how something so small could just spur that sequence of events. Um, He ended up being kicked and stomped and and stabbed and beaten to death in the back alley. They they went around the back and um, attacked him. But people... For years covering this, people, uh, uh, you know, I get messages now and they say, you know, I always thought there was something more to it. Like there had to be something more to it. He couldn't be over something so simple as, you know, him saying, hey, man, that that comment isn't cool. Don't say that. And that that is literally all that uh, caused it. And so, you know, I think it's an eye opener for me just on what little things like sometimes there's not much of a reason behind some of these really horrific crimes it's just you know people do bad things there's some really evil bad people out there right and the uh the why is often unknowable you know yeah there's this homicide detective there's this homicide detective i know who said when i get to a scene it's all about the questions i ask are who what where when how like i don't care about why and I think in that in that context he was talking about the particular motivation of the uh, of the killer and whether he had a terrible childhood or whatever in specific motivated him but sometimes you know you cover enough of these cases and you realize that the why is just unknowable and unanswerable that's tough for jurors sometimes though mm-hmm. jurors when they're presiding over a case they want to know what the motive was, and sometimes the prosecutor cannot supply it. I'll tell you a quick story. If, uh, if yeah, you I minute. would love that. Um, this goes back to my first year as a police reporter at the Daily Pilot, which is based in, well, at the time it was based in uh, Costa Mesa, California, and it covered Costa Mesa and Newport Beach, um, which are next to each other about an hour south of Los Angeles. And one of my first stories was I got word that uh, police and forensic examiners had positively identified the remains of uh, 
a teenage boy named uh, Jamie Trotter who'd gone missing in the 1970s. Um, he'd uh, walked outside to the bus stop and vanished, and he'd never been found. And here I am in 1996 writing a story about how his bones had been found six years earlier in the uh, Cleveland National Forest. Um, which is this vast area, hours from uh, from Costa Mesa. Six years earlier, a, uh, a hiker had come across his bones in this uh, charred, fire-burned area, and it had taken six years for them to prove that it was this kid, uh, Jamie Trotter. And so I did uh, a long story about uh, this missing kid and uh, the grief that his family had endured all of these years. And I believe I interviewed his brother. Um, but I forgot to ask one important question, which, uh, which would have um, maybe influenced the direction of the case. And that question was, uh, who found the bones? Um, it turned out that the guy who found the bones was a man named James Crummel, who apparently had lived on the block of this kid, Jamie Trotter, uh, at the time that he disappeared, and who currently lived just a couple miles away from the Daily Pilot in Newport Beach in a, uh, in a townhome with a psychologist. And if I'd looked further, I would have found that this guy, James Crummel, had a long record of molesting and brutalizing kids. He had a record in Arizona. He had a record in, in other states. He had uh, been accused of strangling one of them. He was, a, he was a serial predator. And I found out about this because... Um, the Newport Beach Police Department sent out a, uh, a notice to all the local residents under a, under something called Megan's Law, which is, uh, I don't know if you have an equivalent in Canada, but Megan's Law was basically designed to uh, inform neighbors that a sex criminal was in your midst. So this guy was, this guy Cromwell was identified as a high-risk sex offender. And so flyers went on the doors of all the people around him. And uh, I went to knock on his door because this was my story, too. Um, and he answered the door. And uh, I talked to him for about, I don't know, a minute or two. And he denied that he had anything to do with, uh, with preying on kids. Uh, and the headline that ran the next day was, Molester says he's no pervert. That was an interesting headline. Um, and it emerged soon after that he had been the guy who found the bones in the desert uh, or, or in the Angeles National Forest. Um, and eventually they, uh, they linked him to the crime. They convicted him of the crime. And they sent him to death row, where a few years later he, uh, he hanged himself. So he obviously wanted to be caught at some points. So enough time had gone by that he wanted some attention. Is that what what had happened? That's uh, that's one of the mysteries. Like, why would the killer of a boy who had pretty much gotten away with it direct police to the bones uh, where he had where he had buried them? 
Um, no one was ever really able to answer that question, but psychologists would say maybe that he takes some pleasure in watching the police uh, work on this case, knowing that he is uh, he's responsible for it. I mean, you know, you'll see you'll see cases of serial killers who inject themselves into the uh, into the investigation um, because it gives them some kind of thrill. Um, but if I'd been a little more alert as a rookie reporter, I would have asked, uh, who found those bones? And I might have uh, helped put a few of these pieces together um, earlier. Because this guy was at large for a long time. That's so interesting. Uh, definitely, you know, I've had that experience where I've been covering uh, a few cases and the people will inject themselves through the media. Um, you know, there, there was a serial rapist case, and next thing you knew, I had the guy who, who looked identical to the composite sketch standing beside me. Um, so there's been a couple encounters like that. And you brought up about the high-risk offenders, and um, this kind of gets into a topic that I wanted to discuss with you. Um, we do. We have a lot of. Do you guys have a, Do you guys have an equivalent of Megan's law up there? Yeah, they have. They have a section in the criminal code where they can apply to the courts if someone has a history of, you know, repeat sexual offending, and they can apply for an exception to be able to put out the public notification. Um, and so that that happens. Uh, you know, they try to save it for the rare cases so that people don't get desensitized to it, for sure. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, very, very early on in my career, there was one of these warnings, and my boss uh, had assigned me to do this story and track down the offender. Um, so we just had this conversation in the newsroom, and he said, you know, find this guy, let's knock on his door, and let's see if he would talk. And I was just a minute from leaving the newsroom when the phone rang and this guy wanted to talk to me. He was seeking me out and he had just been released from prison. So this was a warning that he was back in the community and um, he had been watching my crime stories on the news and somehow had developed in his head this... uh, fake fantasy that I was his girlfriend, but I had no idea when I answered the phone, so it sounded like he wanted to do an interview, and the conversation quickly spiraled, and um, I was well aware what his his intentions were, so, you know, I ended that, and I thought that was the end of it until he kept popping up, and he kind of became a, a stalker, so definitely, you know, in covering these cases and putting yourself out there, you can end up becoming, you know... Um, involved in the case indirectly and I wondered if you have any similar stories where you've you know ended up being the subject of you know whether it's a stalker or threats or or anything like that because I know that's something that I've experienced over the years. I mean I was you know I did a story about a a guy convicted of rape in uh, Tampa and the guy was free. I guess it was kind of an anniversary story, an anniversary of this big case. And uh, the guy got a hold of my address and started sending a bunch of uh, obscene mail to uh, to my home, and that went on for a while. Um, I'm I'm threatened in roundabout ways now and again. I did a another prison interview a few years ago. And I'm sitting next to a guy who starts telling me where I went to school and this detail about me and that detail about me. And uh, I said, how do you know all this stuff? We just met. I didn't think you got Internet access in uh, in prison. And he's like, uh, yeah, I had somebody check you out. So 
it makes you uh, makes you wary. You know, very early on, like I think I was probably only about 20, 21 years old, and I was covering one a gang, like a really, really high-profile gang, and, uh, you know, I, I had to go knock on the door. And the very first thing that they said to me was, you know, your mom's name is X, you're from here, you live here, and they knew everything about me. And, you know, I always have said, you know, I will never be intimidated into not doing a story. I think it's important, though, that people understand, like, we're really trying to do our jobs and present, you know, the facts and the stories in a well-balanced way. And, you know, we just want to be safe and go home at the end of the day. This isn't something that, you know, we want to turn into something even worse. And so, you know, it's a difficult balance because you definitely want to be able to push boundaries and, you know, ask those hard questions and ask them of people who maybe are not the most savory characters. But, you know, we definitely want to maintain our safety. I have to say that uh, the, the times I felt really... Um Really, in physical harm was like uh, it's it's not even the big cases. It's the everyday stuff that you don't even that's not even that important. Like I remember covering a parade in Pasco, like a street parade in Pasco County, Florida, and I was trying to quote some biker about you know whether he was having a good time, and I was trying to get him on the record, and his buddy comes up and starts menacing me and telling me to go away. And I very stubbornly told him I was talking to his friend and I I wanted his quote and it got very menacing, but the stakes were extremely low. I could have very easily just walked away. Um, And it's actually those everyday low, low stakes interactions that, um, that are more numerous and maybe, maybe therefore more likely to get you in trouble. But I, I also have to say, Nancy, that my, um, I've got colleagues all over the world, um, from Syria to Mexico, who are facing infinitely greater peril than I am. And I feel a little bit ridiculous uh, even mentioning that I, that I worry about my safety when I think of the daily danger that they throw themselves in the middle of. Because sure. comparatively, comparatively, they are way, way braver than I am. You know, and I, I think about that even when somebody says, like, how do you deal with the stress of your job? You know, I think about the victims' families that I deal with and the, the stuff that they go through on a daily basis is so much worse than anything I could ever experience in covering it. So I think when you take that time to put everything into perspective, what we do is, is um, you know, it's really not that difficult compared to all of the other things like you're saying. Well, You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Louis Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? 
wade through the weirdest stories on the web, and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. Well, have you ever been deterred from a story because of uh, threats? No, I, tr- I really make an effort not to uh, be bullied into not covering a story. I think it's important for us to, you know, push forward and, you know, shine light in dark places and just really um, do whatever we can to get the story out. And, you know, because you've covered, uh, you know, the crime beat, police beat uh, extensively, you know how hard it is to develop um, sources and, you know, kind of do beat management and just be able to break stories and confirm stories. Well, so have you been covering the same city for a long time? Yeah, the first, you know, eight, five to eight years were were in a different city. And then I kind of crossed over into both for probably the last almost 20 years in the same city. Yeah, so I have been here. So people know what I do. People know my reputation. So for the most part, you know, um, I, I have built a trust. Of course, there's always going to be some person or police officer or in whatever field they are that doesn't necessarily like the media no matter what. But I definitely have a really good uh, working relationship with with, with most of the detectives that I deal with, and that really helps. And I involve them in a lot of the podcast episodes that I'm doing because I really want to be able to show um, the work that they've gone to. And some of these cases, it is really crazy to see the lengths they've gone to to get to the bottom of a case. And uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting to have them share that. And it, it takes a toll on them. I just had a conversation this week with a couple of detectives, and they were talking about... Um, interviewing the offenders and I know this is highlighted uh, a lot so you can probably speak to this about your your most recent podcast but they were talking about the toll that it, it can take on that on them because you know they they have to kind of become friends with that person to get them to open up you can't go in there with a me against you kind of an attitude and expect the person to open up and confess and uh you know that can really take an emotional toll on them um and i I found that conversation really interesting and i know you really get that across yeah i mean that's uh detective traps uh one of her one of her powers uh which you'll hear in the trap uh podcast is her ability to walk into a room and be extremely patient with a person and uh, become, uh, by all appearances, uh, a friend, a friend that uh, they can confide in. And she gets way more out of people that way than a lot of cops would by pounding the table or, uh, or making threats or snarling at them, you know. Um, my favorite part of... Uh, Every crime show I ever watched is the interrogation scene. I don't, I don't love the car chases or people jumping over uh, fences or the shootouts uh, nearly as much as I, as I love to watch the interplay between uh, two people um, in a mental chess game. And uh, I think that's what you see in uh, episode four of, uh, of Trap, where you go into this 13-hour interview where... Detective Trapp is face-to-face with Stephen Gordon, and she has to figure out what will induce him to tell me the truth and the whole truth. And with the help of an FBI agent who is, uh, who is waiting outside watching the whole interview, she comes up with a pretty clever ruse um, 
the changes the course of the interview, I think in the 11th hour, uh, at which point most people would have, I think most people would have been exhausted and uh, uh, maybe given up. Um, but I don't want to give away too much about that turn in the story for those who haven't heard the Detective Trap podcast. Well, so let me ask you, uh, of all the cases you've covered, what has been the most challenging uh, personally? You know, I find that all of the cases that involve children, Amber Alerts, are really, really, um, like, I'm not, I don't have kids, but, you know, I just find them really, really difficult. It's hard to think how somebody could harm a child. I get requests all the time. There's a there's a handful of cases that I've covered in the last, you know, two decades that involve children and people really, really want me to tell these stories and I'm kind of trying to spread them out a little bit because I do, I find them really difficult uh, to go back. And so the very first case that I covered for the podcast was one of those, was one of the most difficult ones that I've covered and it was this little girl. She's just like the cutest, most, like she was just such an innocent, beautiful young girl and um, she was tortured and just the things that happened to her were just horrific. And um, her case took quite a while to solve. And it's not like it was, you know, some random stranger, but police had to figure out a way to prove who had done it. And so it was a split family. And uh, this little girl's name is Mika Jordan. Um, so she was staying with her father and stepmother. And then she gets rushed to hospital. The explanation that they gave was that she had fallen down the stairs and those injuries did not fit the story at all. I mean, she had she had the most severe burn on her hand. Her hair was matted, pulled out like this girl. Like she couldn't survive. It was just horrific, horrific injuries. And so police had to go, you know, they had to do tireless work to try to get them because they weren't turning on each other like they were this solid unit and uh, it took a undercover sting operation uh, for them to finally confess and even then it was only they only confessed because they thought that they were getting the help of a crime boss I don't know if you have those Mr. Big sting operations there but um, it's a common tactic that police use here where you know they have it takes quite a while but they have people befriend the suspects and then the suspects end up confessing in an undercover situation. So, um, but that definitely had an impact on me and still. What do you, what do you, what do you mean, Mr. Uh, Mr. Big Crime Boss? What, what do you mean so by that? So they basically create a scenario and police hate it when we talk too much about these because every single time there's, it's out in the media, you know, people get a little bit smarter and they have to come up with more, you know, unique scenarios to be able to pull this off. But, you know, in this situation, um, the father and stepmother kind of moved on with their life. Like all of a sudden they had all these friends and, you know, they were kind of going out and partying. They had like, their life seemed to be going really, really well. Little did they know that these new friends and new business opportunities were undercover police officers. Um, they knew at one point that the pressure was on, the police were looking at them. And so one of the friends says, oh, I know a guy that can help you. You know, they call that the Mr. Big, the crime boss. And so they each have this individual meeting with the crime boss. And he says, okay, I can help you, but you have to tell me exactly what happened. And I'll know if you're lying, like you need to be honest. 
And, you know, it works. Like these scenarios <laughs> really work and they can tell if they're lying. So they keep pushing and then those explanations match the injuries. So they did have those confessions. And there's always a push to have the defense lawyers always push to try to keep those out of court. So it's become a, a challenge for police and prosecutors to use this. But in cases where no one's talking and you're at this impasse and you can't uh, be able to prove who did what, that's one of the tactics that are, that are used. You don't have that down in California? Oh, I mean, police do all kinds of uh, innovative things. I haven't dealt with that particular one, though. That's very interesting. I, I want to ask you about social media because social media is important, you know, for most news agencies. We all try to push our information out on different platforms. And I use different social media accounts for different things. Like my Twitter account is where I generally would break a story if I'm working on a, a story. My uh, Facebook crime page is where I will let people have more of a discussion, a respectful uh, discussion, hopefully, <laughs> if people are listening, always like to keep it respectful. And then Instagram, I kind of share added content and give people a smaller glimpse into, it's kind of the only glimpse people would get into more of my personal life, but I know it's important, but I know it's a tricky balance, and I want to know how you feel about uh, social media. I, uh, I generally avoid it. Um, the best thing that happened to me in the last couple of years is I lost my Twitter password and I didn't go on. And I got a lot of stuff done that, uh, <laughs> that I otherwise wouldn't, I, that I otherwise wouldn't have because, uh, that can really suck you in and, uh, swallow your day. You know, some of the comments I, I get on my podcasts are surely this is fiction. This is, uh, these can't be real people. People are convinced, and they say so, um, that uh, this is all made-up stuff, which, of course, a minute's research will, uh, will show you uh, it is not. It's, it's all nonfiction. It's all journalism with real people going through real things. And I, I don't remember the name of the newspaper, Nancy, but um, somebody had the clever idea of appending a little quiz to the end of the story that a potential commentator would have to, uh, to answer uh, a couple questions right in before being allowed to comment. And that, that seems to me um, a good way to screen out the people who haven't bothered to read it at all. I can't, rem I can't, I can't remember whether who, who did it or whether it even worked, but, you know... It would at least it would at least elevate the uh, the level of the conversation a little bit. I mean, in the old days uh, when I started, there was no real internet um, or no real email. I guess there was, but it hadn't really gotten off the ground yet. And what's great about today is your stories can reach many more people than just the print version could uh, in the nineties. Um, and also your, you know, my email address is at the end of stories and I love to get emails from readers and I get all kinds of story tips, uh, that way. Um, because they're showing dirty John now on Netflix in the States. Um, I'm getting a lot of people, uh, emailing me about, um, their own experience with, uh, similar situations and similarly, uh, monstrous guys in their life or their family's life and uh, I don't think that would have been possible 25 years ago. 
I would like to know if there are stories that you try to shy away from, like that there's, you know, that you prefer to cover certain cases over other cases and, you know, what the reason would be. Well, I mean, uh, for years and years, I covered daily beats for daily newspapers, sometimes writing two or three stories a day. And if there were, you know, if it rained in Southern California, I had to do a story about the weather. Um, the benefit of my job now and having having uh, done the stories I've done is that I get to choose more the kind of projects that I want to do and pour my energy into them. And I don't carve out any realm of life as not worth writing about. I think it's all worth uh, approaching if you can find the right angle. How about yourself? I would have to agree with you 100% if I can avoid a, a weather story. You know, I my interest <laughs> lies in my interest and my strengths obviously uh, involve crime, the justice system, and telling victims' stories. So, of course, uh, when I'm reporting for daily news, um, I'm constantly pitching crime stories. Like, I don't think a day has gone by where I didn't have uh, at least one pitch to bring to the table, um, because that's that's what I find interesting. And I know for me, mm-hmm. over the years, you know, I was a TV reporter, and I am still a TV news reporter. So I've always had to kind of condense information down into a two-minute television news story. And then, of course, now, you know, we write an online story to go with it. Um, And we also do radio uh, at Global News. So we kind of do all of those. But each story is a very condensed version. So when I got the opportunity to do a podcast, I'd always wanted to do longer form journalism. And so I think this is finally giving me that opportunity because so much goes on behind the scenes that you can't explain that. And I think that's one of the great things about um, this format. And, you know, I hear that in your episodes. There's just so much extra that I find fascinating, Uh the twists and turns that people wouldn't know about. You know, I know, and I don't want to ruin your story for anybody, but I know uh, you talk about the detective having, you know, photos um, at her desk of the the people that she, she, the victims. You know, those are fascinating Uh details that normally we wouldn't have the opportunity to share. So I just wonder how you are um, liking this format. Well, I mean, you know, being a print guy and writing books and writing stories, uh, for me, the, the be-all and the end-all has always been the, the written word, whether it's, you know, viewed on a screen or uh, on a printed page. And that was my, that was my position um, for a long time. I never really aspired to do anything greater than, uh, than a book on a shelf, right? Um, but then they said, hey, do you want to do this podcast? Uh, it could be interesting. Go gather some audio. Do you have any idea how to do it? Um, I said, no, but I'll, uh, I'll figure it out. And I, I, went down to, uh, I went down to the audio uh, the audio store and found a podcasting microphone. Of course, I got the wrong one. I had to go back and get another one. I learned on the fly how to do this stuff. How to do uh, how to do interviews, uh, audio capture, and learn certain tricks like putting your putting your microphone in a shoe and pointing it at the person you're interviewing. Like I I, I learned on the fly, right? Um, and after doing it now for a couple of years and having two podcasts out, uh, I really really like the uh, I really like the medium and the opportunities it affords for storytelling. And there are certain things that you can do in this medium that you just cannot do 
in print. You can share with uh, your listeners the sound of an actual human being uh, whose cadences you will never be able to capture adequately in, uh, in print, no matter how brilliant a writer you might be. So there is, there is nothing quite as beautiful, in my opinion, as the human voice. And that is why I think podcasting is so popular, because of the intimacy of the medium and the fact that it's just you in your car or uh, on your Stairmaster uh, listening to another human being talking to you right into your skull. And there's just stuff that you can't do in print. I do want to ask you, in this you know day and age, there's a lot of podcasts out there, and not all of them are done by journalists. And you know everybody has their place, and I have respect for everybody who's you know participating in this field. But one of the reasons I was drawn to listen to your first podcast in the first place was because you are a journalist. And so I just wanted to ask you about that because you know there's you know there's a lot of opinions on journalism and uh, you know fake news and all of that that goes goes on right now. Um, and so I think that it's just so important. We're the people out there providing information, facts to the public, and we go to the nth degree to provide those facts and make sure that there's accurate reporting happening. And uh, I just wanted to, to know your thoughts on, on the importance of journalism. Well, I mean, if my podcasts are good at all, it's because they're uh, thoroughly, uh, meticulously reported podcasts. Everything I, everything I write is based on solid bedrock of uh, reporting. You know, if the sky was blue that day, and I say so, it's because I looked it up. I checked it out. I mean, this stuff doesn't uh, doesn't come easily. Always, every every fact is reported. So, in the opening of Dirty John, for example, at least the print version. Um, I described this meeting between Deborah Newell and John Mee and their first uh, their first date at uh, Houston's restaurant in Irvine. And to add a little texture to the uh, atmosphere, I wanted to know what kind of wood they were uh, they were looking at at the bar. Um, and so I went down to the place and I asked the guy, "What kind of wood is this?" And he told me. Honduran mahogany, and I took a picture of it, and I compared it to Honduran mahogany samples online, and, you know, that's one fact that most people probably brush right past, but they might register subconsciously. It adds a little bit of texture to the scene. It tells you the kind of restaurant they meet in. It tells you a little bit about the the milieu of the characters, and uh, that's a reported fact, and there are thousands and thousands of them all the way through uh, these podcasts that uh, people don't necessarily realize unless they do it for a living, um, take some effort to, uh, to gather. So we tried very hard with, uh, with, De- with Detective Trap and also with Dirty John um, to make it clear that uh, we're journalists first. So, for example... You know, we partnered with Wondery with the uh, with 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 Dirty John. That was our first partnership with Wondery, the podcast company. And there was a question for a while about whether to put in uh, effects, as in, do you want to hear the knife clattering to the pavement when uh, 
when Terra Newell kicks it out of uh, John Meehan's hand. Um, do you want to hear sound effects from the sound effects database of that restaurant when they're meeting? And we decided in the end to strip all of that out because, you know, it's true. There are people whose, uh, whose mission now is to delegitimize journalism. And we didn't want to give them any opportunity to do so or to question the, the total veracity of everything that we were doing. I appreciate that so much. And when I'm listening, I appreciate that. And I know I do the same things. Like, I don't want that sound of my my hand knocking on a door unless that is legitimately from the tape when I was knocking on the door or the door creaking open. Like when you're hearing that in one of my podcasts, it's because I have audio of that. It's not because I, you know, recreated it and I want it to be legitimate and factual. And I want to know about your, uh, your ability to deal with sources and how that works at a place where you've been a reporter and a known reporter for a long time. Um, and I want to hear about the, I mean, it's kind of a dance that a reporter has to, uh, has to do because you need the trust of people. You might get to know them over five or 10 years. Um, but if you become too friendly, you worry that it might, it might influence you even on a subconscious level when it comes time to do the story. So I'm very curious how you deal with those uh, those tensions. I know what you're saying about it being a, a bit of a dance because you want to be able to confirm information and get information out to the public as fast as you can. So you need the respect and the trust of your sources. Um, but you also have to balance that because you want to be able to hold people to account and there can't be a crossover. So, you know, people ask you about it, but it's just this mental thing that you kind of push stuff around and, and figure out how to do it. And, you know, it takes a lot of years uh, to cultivate good sources and, um, you know, to be able to protect your sources, you know, sources that uh, give me information, they know that I'm not going to um, betray their trust and, you know, betray their confidence. It takes years and years to build those relationships and to build that trust. And honestly, your reputation is something that you really have to build. And sometimes I'll go and speak to, you know, a classroom of police officers that are getting media training and they'll ask me, you know, how do we know who we can trust? And I always say that it has to be on that one-on-one -on -one basis. Like you can't blanket trust all reporters out there because, you know, there's people who will burn you. So it really comes down to that person. Can you trust that person? Maybe they'll trust you with something very small to test the waters. Um, and it goes both ways. I have to be able to trust that person as well. So bottom line, we're trying to get the best information out to the public uh, possible. And the public depends on us as their source of news. You know, somebody sent me a message just recently and they're like, well, how do you get the facts for your story? Like, what, what, what are you Googling? <laughs> and um, oh. it made me laugh because, no, like, I'm not, I'm not out there looking at, I'm not Googling. I'm out there, you know, knocking on doors or checking facts or statistics or I'm at the courthouse pulling court documents or, you know, interviewing police or a prosecutor. And I'm digging up those things on my own. I'm not depending on the Internet 
or Google as my source of information. So it's tough to um, explain that because people will say, you know, I had, I researched this. Well, there's a big leap between researching and typing that in Google and researching and being the one out there gathering the facts yourself. I, I think there's huge value in that. Recently, I did a, a podcast episode about a case I covered. Um, there was a little boy and he had diabetes. So completely something that can be managed, treated. And he ended up not being treated by his parents. So he ended up being put into the foster care system. And so people were, were trying to make sure that he would be taken care of. And there was a really caring police officer who was involved. He had a really caring foster mother. But you fast forward and, and about 10 years and a 15 year old boy was found dead in his home in Calgary. And it ended up being that, that same child. And so when you kind of work backwards and you think like, how could this have happened? There was, you know, this intervention had happened early on, um, but what went wrong? Like, how did they go off the radar? How did this kid fall through the cracks and, and, and mm -hmm. have his life end in such a horrible way? And so in covering this particular podcast, I had to go back and I went through all of the court rulings and I talked to all of the police officers and um, all of the people that were involved in this child's life right from when he was a child. So there was a lot of legwork to be done. And what I found was there was an interview with this little boy when he was just, just little. And he said it better than anyone could have. He knew exactly what he needed to survive. He knew he needed insulin. He knew he needed his blood sugar to be checked. Um, and that audio had never been entered as an exhibit in court. And I was able to access that. And finally, in this episode, just uh, recently, to give him a voice. So I guess there's there's a lot that goes on that people don't realize behind the scenes. And, and that's really what I wanted this conversation to be about was to kind of, you know, peel back the curtain a little bit and give people a glimpse into what we go through to bring people these stories. What it like, what is next for you then? I know you said that there could be a, an opportunity for you to do a podcast that you inject more of yourself into. Um, like what, what would you like to see yourself uh, doing next? Well, I've got a number of things going on. I can't really talk about them in too much detail, but I'm happy to come back on your show when it's out and talk about it then. I love that. That's exactly um, the answer that I would be giving to you. So it's totally understandable. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want to thank you so much. I've, this has just been so great for me to have this conversation with you. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work, as you know. Um, and just uh, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Oh, it's a real pleasure, and uh, I hope we get to talk again. Thank you to Christopher Gofford for joining me for this special edition of Crime Beat. If this is your first time listening, I would love to have you go back and listen to the stories I've shared in the previous episodes. These are all such important cases. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design are by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on Crime Beat. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.